Today's reading is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. Listen to God's Word. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demon. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying, He has an impure spirit. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jerry. Won't you please pray with me for just a moment? Lord, again we turn to this opportunity to reflect upon your word. We ask that your word would do what you purpose it to do in our hearts and in our lives. And so help us by your spirit to be open, that we might receive it joyfully, ponder it thoughtfully, and live it out faithfully. We ask that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You know, there's a psychological condition known as denialism. And denialism is, uh, as the name implies, an inability to accept what is true, to deny it. Now, we all struggle with denial sometimes at various levels. Sometimes the facts aren't clear, and sometimes we can't draw a certain conclusion from the evidence, and so we have our opinions and our viewpoints. That's natural and normal. But sometimes the facts are very clear. Sometimes the evidence points in an obvious direction, and It may be that we don't like what the facts are saying or where the evidence is pointing, and so we choose to ignore certain facts or change the way we view certain aspects of evidence in order to interpret things in a way that we want to, but in reality, we're denying what is true. You know, there are people today who believe that the earth is flat in spite of all the evidence. They believe the Holocaust never happened. They believe we never landed on the moon. They do not believe that Patriots receiver Julian Edelman actually made that catch last Sunday in the fourth quarter. (laughs) See, we have this human tendency to deny what we don't like. And I try to remind myself sometimes, just because I don't like something doesn't mean it isn't true. But still, it's hard sometimes. We have our biases, our opinions, and so anything that comes to us, whether it be a fact or a source of evidence, will cause us to interpret it in a way that fits our bias. This is the human tendency to deny, and when it gets really bad and becomes a disorder, it's denialism. 
As we continue in our study of the life and teachings of Jesus, who he is and what he said and why that matters, uh, today we're going to look at an interesting scene because we're talking these uh, weeks about Jesus and what he had to say about the devil and his encounters with the devil. And we see here today an interesting example of denialism. See, Jesus has been teaching and performing miracles and crowds are gathering. He's building up momentum in his ministry. And some people have come to believe that he is, in fact, the Messiah, the promised Savior, the one that God was going to send. Not everybody was convinced. His family, for example, was still trying to figure it out. As today's scripture said, they weren't sure. They would eventually come to the conclusion that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, most of them. But not all of his family were yet on board. But a lot of people who had heard his teachings and seen his miracles and had been part of his ministry, they were coming to believe he was the Messiah. And yet he hadn't fulfilled all of the prophecies yet. But most important and most impressive were the miracles that Jesus was performing. He was causing the blind to see. People who were crippled and unable to walk were given the ability to walk. Those who were lepers covered with with skin disease were were instantly healed. He fed multitudes with a, a few fish and some bread. He was able to calm storms. But it was the exorcisms, the casting out of demons... That really amazed people. This act of casting out demons was so profound. It seemed to demonstrate that the power of God had come in a very unique way. Well, the religious leaders didn't like Jesus. They were biased against him. They were convinced that he was not the Messiah. And in spite of the evidence that seemed to be pointing in that direction, their minds were already made up. Jesus didn't fit the mold. Jesus didn't fit what they thought a Messiah should look like. He didn't have the proper religious credentials. He was an uneducated, itinerant preacher, son of a carpenter from the backwoods town of Nazareth in Galilee. The religious leaders were convinced he can't be the Messiah. He's dangerous. He's evil. He's a threat to the system because he doesn't come from the system. And yet they couldn't deny his miracles. And especially impressive was this casting out of demons. Clearly this was a sign of something. Some thought it was a sign of the power of God. But the religious leaders decided to change the way they saw the evidence. And in classic denialism, they decided that the power Jesus was demonstrating was not the power of God at all. It was in fact the power of the devil at work. See, unable to deny the miracles, they chose to deny the source of those powerful miracles and say it wasn't God, it was Satan. As it says in verse 22, they they proclaim it's by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that he casts out demons. Now, Beelzebul, the prince of demons, just another name that was used for Satan or the devil in those days. And so they're declaring here that Jesus is actually using the power of the devil to cast out other devils. That's how they're interpreting The evidence. And Jesus confronts their denialism the best way possible with common sense. He says to them, look, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. If by the power of the devil I'm casting out demons, then Satan doesn't stand a chance. He's he's opposed against himself. He can't advance his kingdom of darkness in the world. Something's really wrong if you think I'm casting out demons by the power of the devil. And then Jesus uses an analogy, the analogy of the strong man. He says, 
Imagine you want to break into a strong man's house and steal his possessions, plunder his goods. You must first bind up the strong man so he can't resist you, and then you can plunder his house. To put it maybe in a more common analogy today, imagine for a second that somebody breaks into your house and steals your flat screen, 70-inch flat screen LED high-definition smart television set with remote control. A very strong man comes in and takes it from you. And goes down a few houses to his house, and he puts it in his house. And he sits down in his easy chair, and he says, I'm a big, strong man. Nobody can take what I take. And then he starts watching a show, and you decide, I'm going to get my TV back, doggone it. And you make a plan. Well, the first thing you've got to do is figure out, how am I going to deal with that strong man sitting in the easy chair watching my television? Because he'll resist me. He'll oppose me. He'll probably confront me and try to attack me. So the first thing I've got to do is disable him, disarm him. I have to re- figure out a way to restrain him or bind him up or tie him up before I can take back what is rightfully mine. And, and so Jesus is kind of painting this kind of a picture, using this kind of analogy to say that he is casting out demons because a power greater than the devil is now here. And that the, the devil has now been restrained in certain ways and disabled in certain ways. That Jesus has now diminished the power of evil in the world. And that Jesus is showing how his power is greater than the devil's power. The light of Jesus is greater than the darkness of Beelzebul. And friends, Jesus then concludes his remarks by talking about this thing known as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. He says all sins will be forgiven except the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's the one thing that's not forgivable. And I, and I want to sh- share just briefly this passage with you today. I decided to include it in the Scripture lesson because in my experience, people don't understand what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And some Christians are afraid because they don't know what it is. They're afraid that maybe somehow they've done it at some point in their life. And now no matter what they do the rest of their life, they are, they've committed the unforgivable sin. They can never go to heaven. They're, they're, they're lost forever. And so I just want to put all those concerns at ease and explain what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit really is. What it is, is attributing the work of God to the devil. It's living in such a state of denial that no matter what God tries to do to extend to you His grace, His goodness, His love, His mercy, His light, that you choose instead to deny it all and say, no, that's not God, that's the devil. Because that's what's happening in this story. And notice at the end in verse 30, after Jesus warns people about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it says... He said this, he being Jesus, Jesus said this because they were attributing his miracles to the devil and saying that he had an evil spirit. So the reason the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unforgivable sin is because the only way to receive the mercy and forgiveness and grace of God is to recognize it and accept it by faith. And if you are in such a state of denial that you won't do that, you can't have what you won't receive, what's offered to you. I mean, imagine for a second that you're out in the ocean and you're drowning and a ship comes along and throws you a life jacket. Someone throws you a life jacket. And when that life jacket hits the water, you say, that's not a life jacket. That's a bag of cement. And I know, even though it's floating on water, I know if I grab a hold of it, it's going to pull me down and I'll be dead. So I'm not going to grab it, right? Well, that... That's kind of what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's, it's see, looking at the cross, looking at the empty tomb, reading the, the good news of the gospel and saying, that's not God, that's some kind of trick from the devil. Because that's what the religious leaders were doing. They were committing blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus is warning them that if you go down that path, you won't find the access to God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness that's available to you. 
It's, it's not that God won't forgive you. It's that you won't receive the mercy and grace He offers without recognizing it. Does that make sense? So, so this encounter between Jesus and the religious leaders is really important because it reminds us that good and evil are in conflict in this world. And you and I have to be clear about what good and evil looks like. The Scriptures tell us that we need to develop the ability to discern good from evil. Part of what the Bible describes as wisdom is the ability to discern what is good from what is evil, what is right from what is wrong. How you interpret the facts, how you look at the evidence, makes a big difference. You don't want to live in a state of denial. And if you see Jesus for who He really is, if you begin to understand what He's come to do for us, we begin to recognize that the power of God is greater than the power of the devil. God and the devil are not two spiritual beings in equal power fighting against each other. No, no. God is vastly superior. The devil has some power. That power is real. Evil is real. But it's not as powerful as as what God offers us. That's why we can overcome evil with good. The strong man may be strong, but he's not so strong that we cannot overcome him through the power that God gives us. Because we've received Jesus as our Lord and our Savior and the Holy Spirit dwells within us, Jesus wants us to know that we now have power over evil as well in our lives, in our world, in our relationships, in our circumstances. I uh, don't mean to suggest today that we should go around casting demons out of people. Uh, Frankly, I don't fully understand that part of the Scripture. I don't doubt that evil spirits exist. I don't doubt that exorcisms happen. I don't seem to have that gift. I tried it on a cat once, and it didn't work out well. (laughs) But here's what... That's probably another sermon for another day, but what I want us to understand is you and I do have the power of God operating in our lives in such a way that we can overcome what we might call modern-day demons. Demons like addiction, like discouragement and cynicism like hatred or lust or pride or greed or violence or vanity these are the modern day forms of evil that that get into the human heart and mind and cause all kinds of pain and problem in our personal lives in our homes in our schools in our world and we have the power through jesus christ to stand against these forces and overcome them in our own lives and in relationships and circumstances. And so in the few minutes we have left together, I want to encourage you to join me in making a commitment to develop two qualities that Jesus demonstrated, qualities that through His Spirit He wants to develop in us. Embrace these two qualities and begin to live them out more fully and you'll discover, as Jesus wants us to discover, that we have a great power at work within us that can overcome evil with good. And here are the two qualities. Here's the first one, confidence. To have confidence. Not, I'm not talking about arrogance. See, uh, arrogance is rooted in self. It's in puffed up pride. I'm not talking about arrogance. I'm talking about confidence. A confidence that rests in God and His ability and His, His authority and His power which wants to be at work in us and through us. See, I stand up here uh, many Sundays to preach. And I want to deliver God's Word with confidence. But not confidence in my own skill and ability as an orator. Because here's what I know. 
If I've done my work this week in God's word, and if I've given God an opportunity to work in me through his word, then when I stand up here and trust in the spirit to work, the spirit will work through me, through the word, to say something that is relevant and helpful and impactful and sometimes convicting because the Holy Spirit works through all that. But here, if I just come up here thinking it's about me and, and my ability, I will fall flat on my face because my confidence is based in the wrong thing. And I say that because you have gifts, talents, skills, and abilities that God is working in your life as well. And he wants to use those gifts, talents, skills, and abilities in your areas of influence in life, in the, in the home, at school, at church, at work. All these different ways God wants to work in you and through you. He's given you opportunities. He's given you responsibilities. And he's given you and me the tools we need to do the work he's called us to do so we can be confident in his ability to work in us and through us. Amen on that. Can I get an amen? See, God wants us to have confidence as we carry out the work he's called us to do. What we call faith, faith in the Bible is not just a belief in God. It's a confidence in God. It's a confidence that God can and will carry out His purposes in us and through us if we will cooperate. We are called to be God's image bearers. He created us to bear His image. He created us in His image to bear His image to the world. And He calls us, if you read Genesis, He calls you and me to have dominion. That's He's given us authority to have dominion. That doesn't mean we go around and plunder the, the earth and we, we take whatever we want, we do whatever we want, and we act like we're arrogant lords over people. No, no, no. To have dominion means to demonstrate responsible authority in a way that blesses other people. So you and I are to have dominion in a way that blesses other people and glorifies God. That's our calling. That's, that's, that's our destiny. And we can have confidence in that. In Atuam, Ghana, there's a, uh, it, it's a small village of about 7,000 people in West Africa. And in 2009, the, the 90-year-old king of Atuam died. And so the, the village elders got together and began the process of selecting a new king. And they had a, a time-honored ritual for choosing the new king. And they, they would write out a list of the 25 closest relatives to the deceased king. And then they would get in a circle with this list of names. And somebody would start reading off the list of names one at a time while someone else would pour schnapps, alcohol, onto the ground. And at some point, as the schnapps is on the ground and the sun was beating down, at some point, steam would begin to rise from the schnapps. And I'm not making this up. Whosever name was being read as the steam was rising from the schnapps, that was going to be the new king. That's how they did it. And so they did it that way. And when the steam started to rise from the schnapps, they were reading the name of Pegaline Bartise. Pegaline Bartise was at that time living in America. She was working as a low-level secretary around the Washington, D.C. area in a small little apartment driving a beat-up old car. And when she got the news that she was now selected to be the king of her childhood village of Atuam, she traveled back for her coronation ceremony. And she was crowned the king, not the queen, the king. Because in Atuam, they don't have queens, they just have kings. But, but women are allowed to be kings, and so that's how she was coronated, as the king. And she, she has a throne, she has a palace, she has a 1,000-acre estate. 
She has a driver and a chef and an entourage of servants and advisors. She even has a solid gold crown. She is now the king of Atuan. She went from being a, a secretary in America, barely scraping by, to now being king of a village. And what's interesting, she was interviewed by the Washington Post, and, and she said her biggest challenge has been figuring out how to live into her new identity. That, you know, it, it's hard for her to see herself in this new role that at first it was kind of intimidating and she wasn't sure, but, but uh, as she began to carry out her responsibilities, she discovered that uh, she had this level of authority that she'd never had before. That her new identity was rooted in this new authority that she had, and the authority she had was granted to her as a sacred trust to better the lives of the people in her village. What a great way to look at it, don't you think? Like Pegaline Bartiz, you and I have a new identity when we accept Jesus as our Savior. We are now children of the King, which makes us princes and princesses. So when you call your daughter princess, you're speaking the truth that she's a Christian. Ladies, when you look at your husband and say you're a prince, you know, it's true. We, we, ha- we are royal. The Bible says this. So we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that we might declare the glories of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And with that calling comes power and authority as a sacred trust to be used appropriately, but to be used with confidence. Have dominion over the areas of life where God has called you. Step confidently into whatever challenges, whatever opportunities, whatever responsibilities God has given you and trust that if you apply God's wisdom and rely on God's power, He will be at work. Are you exercising that level of confident authority in your life these days? Are you living by faith? Confident that you can have that difficult conversation with your spouse, but you can have that conversation in love? Confident that you can overcome this addiction that's been holding you back if you use the appropriate tools and rely on the strength that God gives you. Confident that you can help your teenager navigate these awkward, difficult teenage years. Confident that when the doctor says this is very serious, you can walk through whatever you've got to walk through knowing that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Confident that when the financial stress becomes a financial crisis, you can be sure that God will provide for all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, my friends, here you know what the world needs more than anything right now? I think the world needs more than anything right now confident Christians. Not arrogant Christians, not self-righteous Christians, not judgmental Christians, not angry Christians, but confident Christians who will take dominion and bear the image of the One who says to you and to me, you belong to me, you have a calling on your life. Be confident. Even if you know that tears will last through the night, but joy cometh in the morning. Even when you realize that even though I may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear evil, for the rod and the staff of my shepherd will comfort me. Even when you struggle to believe that greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, remember 
I can do all things through him who gives me strength. God works all things together for good. See, Jesus speaks to us. The scriptures speak to us. God speaks to us by his spirit. And he says, I am greater than the devil. I am greater than evil. My light overcomes darkness. So take the authority I've entrusted to you. Use it wisely and well, but use it with confidence. And once we embrace confidence, then we can work on the next quality, which is courage. In fact, confidence will lead us to courage. Courage is more than confidence. Courage is confidence in action. Courage, as many of you know, is not the absence of fear. It's the ability to take appropriate action in spite of or in the midst of fear. If you wait until you're not afraid to do something, until you do it, right? If you wait, if you're not going to do something because you're afraid, then that fear holds you back then, and you think someday the fear will go away and then you'll do it, that's eh, not going to happen. Sometimes you've got to step forward in spite of, in the midst of fear. There's an old expression that says, courage is fear that has said its prayers, right? Truth of the matter is, friends, great things get done by people who are a little afraid, but not willing to let fear hold them back from what they believe God is calling them to do. How about you? One of the qualities that the early Christians had that were that impressed the ancient pagans was, was this quality of courage. Yes, they had a love, but they also had, had courage. The courage to sacrifice their own security and their own comfort for the sake of others, to stand up against oppression and injustice and hatred, to care for the outcast. A willingness to even suffer arrest and harassment, even execution, rather than deny their faithfulness and loyalty to the Savior. I'll tell you, it was the courage of the early church that literally changed the trajectory of the world and human history, and courage is required today as well. I'll tell you, sometimes God allows us to experience circumstances, and when we go through those those circumstances in a courageous way, it bears witness to the world. I'm wondering, what are you going through right now that maybe, maybe God wants you to use so your kids can see what courage looks like? So that your co-workers can see what courage looks like? So that your neighbors and your spouse can see what, what courage looks like? This past Thursday, we had a, another funeral here at Ebenezer. These flowers are from that funeral. Uh, Laura, 50 years old, died after a several months battle with cancer. Got the call last Sunday from her family that she'd passed away at home, went over there. We surrounded her lifeless body, held hands and prayed. And uh, when we prayed, we thanked God for her life, for her faith, and most of all, for the courage she demonstrated on a daily basis as she went through battling that disease. And so we gathered to celebrate her life on Thursday, and people stood up and talked about Laura's testimony, mostly her faith, and how the love of Jesus was at work at her in her during the most difficult time of her life. And a mother who is not going to let, not going to be able to see her her daughters on their wedding day, and who's not going to be able to enjoy a 50th anniversary with her husband. A mother like this still gave that family every reason to be thankful and joyful for the journey of life they had together and confident and courageous for whatever life holds in the future. 
It's a beautiful thing. And what I, the reason I tell you about Laura is because you and I will find ourselves in situations and circumstances in life where we are called upon not to be grumblers or complainers or whiners or bitter or resentful or angry, but instead to be confident and courageous knowing that greater is He who is in us than the evil in the world. And God can use all things for His glorious purposes if we will take dominion with confidence and courage. Near the end of World War II, a plane carrying 24 U.S. military personnel crashed in a dense forested area of New Guinea. The injured survivors were trapped there. Several people had died, and this is a densely covered valley, dense jungle, cannibalistic tribes. The Army called upon a special battalion of 66 jump-qualified soldiers known as the 1st Reconnaissance Battalion, called upon them to try a rescue mission. Uh, Their motto was very interesting. The Philippine phrase, Bahala Na, which means come what may. And so their CEO called them together, all 66 of them, and explained the situation. The only way to get the wounded survivors out of there was to parachute into that dense jungle, locate them, carry them out a 150-mile hike through some of the most rugged and unfamiliar terrain in the world trying to avoid headhunters, cannibals, and Japanese troops. Chance for success, less than 50%. Ten volunteers needed, including two medics. And after explaining the situation and the odds and the challenges, the CEO asked for volunteers. All 66 hands went up. Every one of them. I'll go. I'll do it. Some of them even shouted out, Bahala na, come what may. We need Bahalana Christians today, amen? We need ordinary people like you and me willing to say, come what may, I will have the confidence and the courage necessary to live out my life with faith in a way that demonstrates to the world that greater is he who is in me than the evil around me, that light is greater than darkness, that victory is ultimately the Lord's, that the power of God is greater and the power of evil. Friends, let's not live in denial. This world can be hard sometimes. There will be tragedy. There will be suffering. There will be injustice. But we were created by God to be His image bearers in this world as we work toward the world yet to come. He has given us dominion, authority, and power. Let's use it wisely and well with confidence in our true identity with courage that puts our faith into action. Jesus is Lord. We are His people. We're children of the King. We're an army of light in the midst of darkness. The strong man may be strong, but he's not nearly as strong as we think. His power is limited, and his days are numbered. And greater is He who is in us than the darkness that's in our world. Bahala na, come what may. Let's be the people we're called to be. Amen?